0: Hey, it's Manoush here. We are all in the midst of wrapping up 2021. And here on the show, we want to dive back into our series about oceans. Last week was part one, a love letter to the ocean. And before we get to part two, well, we've got something special for you from our friends at the podcast, How to Save a Planet, from Gimlet. It's hosted by former NPR journalist Alex Bloomberg and marine biologist Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Ayana is a TED speaker, and you might recognize her voice. She is featured not once, but twice in our Ocean series because she's that good. Yes, we love Ayana. And we also love this episode about kelp and kelp farming, especially a variety that I had not heard of called sugar kelp. So we wanted to share it with you right here, right now. Enjoy. Welcome to How to Save a Planet.
1: I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson.
2: And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And this is the podcast where we talk about what we need to do to address the climate crisis and how we make those things happen.
1: So, Alex, back when we were first discussing this podcast, mm-hmm. when it was but the barest idea of a seed in our minds, I knew that I definitely wanted us to interview this fascinating fisherman, Bren Smith.
2: And I was like, fascinating fisherman? I'm in. (laughs)
1: This is not (laughs) a hard sell. He's so much fun to talk to. He's got an amazing life story, and we got him to share it with us. Bren told us he grew up in Newfoundland, Canada, in a small town called Maddox Cove.
3: It's the most eastern point in all of North America. You know, our, our houses were bolted to the cliffs up above the ocean. And you imagine they were red, green, yellow, uh, orange houses all painted with leftover boat paint. And, uh, you <laughs> know, the saying around town was that we paint them bright colors so we can find our way home drunk in the fog. And it was just like the idyllic. Town. I. It was, you know, fishermen's co-op next door, kids growing, um, selling cod tongues door to door, squid runs, capelin runs. It was just sort of, you know, when we think of that artisanal, small-scale fishery, that's where that's where I grew up.
2: I, I think idyllic. I also think cold in the winter.
3: Well, if you're a coward. <laughs> Which <laughs> I am.
2: <laughs>
3: no, no, no it, I mean, definitely, you know, like I remember one year the snow was above our – hard doorway and we had to like open it and dig from the inside. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, and you know, we'd put out, you know, jeans and towels and they they'd crack in the ice. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was it was definitely cold.
1: How did you get your first taste of fishing?
3: It was on the cliffs with my dad. We had this thermos of uh, tomato soup. And um, it was storming. It was like it was just blowing. I must have been blowing like 30 or 40. So we didn't catch uh anything forever and then my dad told me this was my last cast and so I cast uh and I caught a fish I caught this beautiful cod and so it was this it's like my my first time was a really positive fishing experience I got a picture of my wall of that
2: fish Mm. Uh, how old were you though I don't know four or something oh wow
1: and you're like this is my job now yeah this is what I'm doing yeah yeah so Alex you know my mom's family is also from Newfoundland my grandfather grew up fishing in those same waters.
2: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, pretty cool.
2: Yeah. But, of course, that's not the reason that we're talking to Bren today, your, your shared no. family histories.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's totally tangential. Yes. I wanted to talk to Bren because I think he represents this sort of philosophical transformation that I think we really need to— see and foster more broadly, right? So he started out as a commercial fisherman who went from not really thinking about climate change at all to being at the leading edge of a whole new industry that's developing as part of the solution. And and his transformation, it took a long time,
2: right? It took him yeah. a long time to see climate change even as a threat and then to find his place as part of... The solution.
1: He's like the poster child for trial and error as uh-huh. a viable approach to making your way through the world. As like, a
2: lifestyle choice. <laughs> and, and Bren, he crisscrossed the country. He lived in trailers, tents, he worked on different boats of one kind or another. And it took a natural disaster for him to fully comprehend the threat of climate change and for him to finally arrive at the solution he hit on for himself. And this solution. Bren thinks it could be a solution not just for him, but for many, many people, thousands, possibly millions of people up and down the coastlines of North America and even the world.
1: That solution is seaweed. (laughs) Seaweed! (laughs) So, today, how seaweed can play a role in addressing climate change and how Bren Smith became its unlikely evangelist.
2: Okay, so before we launch into this episode, we just want to say Bren's a fisherman, and not to stereotype, but um, sometimes the language gets a little salty. (laughs) Get it? And so we just want to sort of, like, warn listeners that there is one bad word in this episode, a synonym for poop.
1: And some, like, sex, drugs, and rock and roll.
2: Yep. So nothing crazy, but, you know, just to be warned. All right. So let's begin Bren's story in that town of Maddox Cove, where he spent his childhood, and back then, when he was a kid, he didn't think about climate change. He didn't think about seaweed. He thought a lot about the local fishermen because he idolized them. You know,
3: being a fisherman, right? You're like they get up in the morning. You see them going out on their boats. They own their own boats. No bosses. Self-directed lives. They just go over this horizon where there's just no rules. It's you get to you get to live wild. You're some of the last, you know, hunters on Earth, and and you get to feed your community. I mean, that is like. You know, a great job, and you know, and keep me out of the cubicles, give me that any day.
1: But Bren's early dreams of becoming a fisherman, those were squashed by his parents. When he was in his early teens, his family decided it was time to move back to the U.S., where they were from.
3: So it was actually a, a vote in the family. and I, I, you know, I got my parents and my sister and me. About whether to stay in Newfoundland or come to America. And they. It's so
1: democratic. I love it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, I didn't because it was three to one (laughs) vote. Like I was the only one voter in Newfoundland. And it's actually why now I deeply believe in benevolent dictatorships as opposed to (laughs) democracy, you know, because that first taste of democracy was just like ruined my life. I mean, you know, when I ended up in the suburbs of Connecticut, it was like a war crime for a kid like me, (laughs) you know, right? and, and And up there. And you know, I ended up in this school, and it just immediately wasn't wasn't for me, and I think I'm packed full of learning disabilities and sort of frustration and that that anger that comes with you know when you have trouble learning like, like other people, and you got to do it on, on your own terms, and I started getting in trouble, started getting arrested, fights, I punched a kid with braces, and I still got the scar right in my middle middle knuckle. so anyway, I got out of there and um I headed to Lynn, Massachusetts. it was Lynn was a pretty rough place. It was called Lynn, Lynn, the City of Sin. Uh-huh. And went there and worked on a lobster boat. So that was my first, my first commercial job. And
2: how old were you at that point? I was 14. 14. So oh you dropped gosh. out of school, mm-hmm. and at 14 you were working on a lobster boat. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And that was pretty much it for Bren. He knew he wanted to live his life as a fisherman. So from Lynn, Massachusetts, he eventually made his way to Alaska where he worked first in the canneries and then eventually got on a boat out to the Bering Sea, fishing for crab and for cod.
2: And this was in the early 90s when something really dramatic was happening for cod fishermen on the other side of the continent from where Bren was, off the coast, actually, of Bren's childhood home of Newfoundland.
0: Good evening. The news was expected, but that didn't make it any less devastating. For at least the next two years, much of Newfoundland will lose a way of life. It's a moratorium on fishing for northern cod, a ban that will affect about 20,000 people and gut the backbone of the Atlantic fishery.
2: This is a 1992 broadcast from the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation.
0: The entire area is off-limits to cod fishing as of midnight tonight. Small independents, big company trawlers, all will have to pull their nets and dock their boats. It's an unprecedented move prompted by a troubling situation, the lowest level of cod stocks ever recorded. So
2: Brand is on one side of the continent, in the Bering Sea, in the Pacific Ocean, fishing for cod. But hearing about the collapse of the cod stocks on the other side of the continent, in the Atlantic Ocean, off Newfoundland.
3: Largest layoff in Canadian history, 30,000 people thrown out of work, boats beached, canneries emptied. And it's just devastating to, you know, something that's built up over hundreds of years can, if you don't be a steward of this resource, just can rip communities apart. And for me, that was a
2: sort of wake up call. I was like, okay, fishing is not going to be a livelihood. How were you hearing about it? You're on the Bering Sea. Mm. How does the news filter to you? What specifically are you hearing?
3: I guess it was a fax machine. I mean, I never saw it because it was in the captain's quarters. But they would get sent out weather and sports and news sometimes. And so that's how I heard of it. The captain told us about it because it was, you know, big news. We were I was fishing for black
2: cod. In the Bering Sea, which is on the other side of the continent. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And he comes out with a fax paper. What did he say?
3: I, I think it was just pretty, you know, it was like short. Like there was a, you know, they, they, uh, it, it wasn't that there was a collapse of the cod fishery. It wasn't framed that way. It was framed as like, like they shut down the cod fishery. There was a they, right? And that's been one of the issues is, you know, that we see to this day. Like, yeah, environmentalists get blamed as opposed to you know, sort of economic and environmental issues. So um, it was just real short. It was like they, they shut down the cod stocks.
2: And what did you think when you heard that?
3: So for me it was you know it was it was particular in that it was back home in Newfoundland it was the place I um, uh, I loved so it was this like mixed consciousness of like and you know I knew that it's clear to us you're working on the on the boats and it was unsustainable I mean what happened with fishing was World War II technology actually shifted into the industry. And so, you, you know, whether it was the sonar radar with the spotter planes um, going around trying to identify fish stocks, we just got too good at what we uh, what we did. And it was like
1: an arms race to catch the last fish.
3: Yeah. And we won. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we're too good at this stuff yeah. as, as as humans, finding those efficiencies, just getting better and better and Trying to solve problems.
1: Uh, fish don't really have a chance.
3: Exactly. So there was this sort of inkling that, that that this wasn't sustainable.
2: What what did that feeling feel like to you? Like when you were out there? Like what was the thought that came into your head as you were thinking that?
3: Yeah, I mean you just see a lot of dead Stuff, you know, we, we work on the draggers. You haul up all this fish. You only got permits for, say, cod and you throw back everything else and, and a whole bunch of it's dead. It's, you know, bycatch is the famous oh. problem. And, you know, Ayana knows so much uh, about this.
1: Yeah, all that bycatch. I mean, the ratio can be really dramatic, right? Sometimes it's like yeah. three to one. You're throwing back like three fish you're not allowed to catch, you know, permits for, for every one that you keep.
0: Wow.
3: Because you're
1: fishing with these huge nets, and the smaller the thing you want to catch, the finer the mesh is. So it's just catching everything. In shrimp, it can be like 10, 20, 30 to 1. And you just pick out what you want. And in the time that it takes to pick out the things that you want or are permitted to keep, everything else is just on the deck dying. And you just shove it back overboard. Uh. Exactly.
3: And Ayana, you know this. Is it the pressure that kills the fish?
1: Yeah, the the pressure is so different at the surface and in the depths at which you're fishing that you pull the fish up so quickly they don't have a chance to equalize. So, mm-hmm. like, all this, like, internal pressure just, like, pushes everything out of them. Their guts can come out, you know? They're not just like you put them back overboard, and they'll be fine, yeah this it's like scuba diving, right? If you rock it to the surface from a hundred meters deep, that's really bad for you right um so fish are going through the same issue of pressure so they, when you pull them up to the surface super quickly, they'll have the bends basically they'll exactly. have the bends, yeah
3: so you're you're on the deck, you're chucking some dead ones over, and you're keeping keeping others, and so you just have these sort of floating rings of death around your boat. It's just so wasteful. You know, it's, it really is. It, I mean, it is
2: heartbreaking to see. And it, was it heartbreaking for you in, in the very beginning or did it become heartbreaking over time for you? Oh, that's interesting
3: question. I think it became over time. And this is why I miss fishing so much. Like that thrill, the adrenaline, the independence, the lawlessness of it. That feeling of, of just no eyes on you is just such a wonderful feeling. So I think... That's how it My emotionally that's where I, I started. But then, yeah, it's just like haul after haul, year after year. That's what—it really digs away at you. Huh. You just see see that much death at that scale.
1: So there's an important caveat here. The oh. types of commercial fishing Bren is describing— the particularly destructive trawling and what I was describing with high rates of bycatch are not something that necessarily always happens in commercial fishing. Right. That's sort of the worst-case scenario. And thankfully, regulations have evolved since Bren was fishing, and in general, fishing in the U.S. is actually more sustainable now than it used to be. Huh. That's good news. Yeah, it is good news. You know, policy Policy matters. You gotta, <laughs> right. you know, change the rules to keep up with the state of the ecosystem. Right. But for Bren, at the time, there was this conundrum. He desperately wanted to stay on the sea to make his living, but was becoming increasingly aware that the common ways to do that were not sustainable.
2: But he'd been hearing about this thing, aquaculture, mm-hmm. which, um, What's the layman's term for that, Dr. Anna Elizabeth Johnson, marine Uh, biologist? Fish farming. Fish farming, yes. And specifically salmon farming. And so he thought maybe this could be a way for me to stay on the ocean and make a sustainable living. So he decided to give it a try. He found his way back to Newfoundland and got a job on a salmon farm.
3: And it was just terrible. I mean, it was at that time, this was the early early 90s and just when land based farming was trying to figure out how to move away from industrial agriculture into some other mode like you know organics regenerative things like that aquaculture borrowed all the lessons the bad lessons from land based agriculture and essentially were running pig farms out at out at sea Right. You know, just shovel and feed into huge pens and just you know, salmon shitting everywhere and like use of antibiotics, pesticides, and the fish tasted terrible. And so that was not what I was looking for. So I just, I kept searching from there. You know, it's back up in Newfoundland and I was drinking Guinness and trying to read, you know, environmental reports about aquaculture to
2: put my life, my
3: daily. (laughs) you know,
1: drinking Guinness and reading environmental reports. I can totally picture you doing
2: this. Just checking out. Just
1: going to have a beer and nerd out on these government documents.
3: (laughs) But actually there was – I remember I applied for a – Contest Guinness was given away—a thing where if you came up with a slogan for Guinness, you'd get a free bar in Ireland. And so we all entered and, and tried to get in. And I, mine was, "I love Guinness so much it makes me angry."
2: <laughs> <laughs> Did you win? And I didn't win. Please tell no, me what. Not even
3: close. Not even close. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a good slogan. <laughs> <laughs> they were looking for a Guinness is good for you kind of vibe, probably. Yeah, exactly. Probably. Exactly.
3: Probably.
2: So Brandon's sitting there drinking Guinness. He's still young. He's barely in his 20s. You know, the only thing that's made him happy professionally was being on the ocean. But every time he found a spot for himself there, something would drive him back on land, whether it was the collapse of the fisheries, the moral dilemma of bycatch, or his disenchantment with commercial salmon farming. And so he decided maybe a college education will help. And he enrolled in the University of Vermont, planning to major in marine biology. Yeah, Your field. Did you make that decision over a over Guinness?
1: No, I was five. <laughs> I was not yet drinking <laughs> Guinness at the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
2: Right, right, right.
1: The Guinness came later for me. <laughs> yeah.
2: So anyway, that decision made. He spent the summer making some money fishing in Alaska. And then that fall, he flew to the East Coast to start his life as a college student.
3: And I flew in right out of Dutch Harbor in the Bering Sea Landed, and I found myself in this dorm full of fret like meatheads. And it was just this bizarre thing. I was in this room with this roommate. And I was just like, no freaking way. So second day, I moved out of the dorm into the golf course. They had, you know, they got woods and golf courses, the fair, you know, I don't know what's called, yeah. fairway or something. And I built a lean-to and lived there my first semester. <laughs> my <God>. um, <laughs> and I got to tell you, I, if if you want to, like, get lucky in Vermont, like at UVM, living lot lean-to, like <laughs> all the women just loved it. It was the I got the most action I ever got just in my life. Big actually, was in that lean golf course. <laughs> yeah. <I love> it.
2: <laughs> the back to the land, not man of the of the, yeah. the U- UVM golf course. Yeah, and I was making bank. Like
3: I was selling mushroom and acid and dope and stuff to all these, you know, prep school kids and stuff. And you know, they, they'd pay anything. So I, in the lean too, I had these scales and I'd measure it out and they'd come and I'd sell it. So I, I was, you know, and that's how I was paying for school and stuff. Just
1: a hustler.
3: I've always wondered, like when I started telling the story, I'm just, I'm wondering if any of these places are going to revoke my, what, uh, you know, my graduation or my degrees. Like I'm just <laughs> waiting for that.
2: It just occurred to me, Ayana. Like at this point in the story, I wonder if our listeners are like, "Wait, how? How? How are we? We, we seem to be moving further away from a climate solution." <laughs> <laughs> we started as just, a fisherman, and now we're like us. dealing drugs out of a lean-to, and all of
1: course.
0: <laughs> it it all—it's it, all leading somewhere. Hey, it's Manouche. You are listening to a bonus episode from our friends at How to Save a Planet as part of our special series on the ocean. And I just want to take a sec to let you know what we are cooking up for 2022. I am kind of crazy excited about the episode coming your way on January 7th. We are dedicating the hour to exploring genes, specifically genetic tools, and how we are on the cusp of a scientific revolution that is changing the very nature of evolution. And one of the big brains leading the way is Nobel Prize winner Jennifer Doudna, the inventor of the gene editing CRISPR technology. Here's a little sneak listen of our conversation. You know, I had just come home from the lab and, you know, we had just gotten the data that showed how this worked. And I was at home, I was, you know, I was cooking spaghetti in my kitchen for my young son, and I I just suddenly burst out laughing. Because I, I thought, this is so crazy, you know, that, that we started working on this, this thing. Didn't really know where it was going. And it, was, it certainly wasn't a popular area of science at the time. Most people had never heard of CRISPR. And yet we had uncovered this just absolutely extraordinary uh, molecule whose chemistry was going to probably change the world. More from Jennifer Doudna very soon. Also, the story of a cloned, black-footed ferret named Elizabeth Ann. That's in 2022, very soon. For now, let's get back to this episode of How to Save a Planet. Hosts Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and Alex Bloomberg were talking to Bren Smith, a fisherman trying to make a living off the ocean sustainably without contributing to its demise.
2: We left things in a not-very-promising spot. Brand had been forced off the sea again and was dealing drugs out of a lean-to in the middle of a golf course at the University of Vermont. That's where he was. But now, let's fast forward a couple decades or so to where he is today.
3: We're about a mile off shore, maybe half a mile, not far at all.
2: So, Ayanna, you know that in the summer of 2020,
3: Mm -hmm. I
2: donned a mask, grabbed a six-foot-long boom pole to hold a microphone at a proper pandemic distance, and... uh met Bran and went out with him on his boat into the Long Island Sound.
1: I was so jealous that I couldn't join you that day. I mean, I've never been out on a boat with Bran and I've known him for many years. And I can't believe you got to go before I did.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I know, it sucks. (laughs) But it was really fun for me. Yeah, he he took me out and showed me what he's doing now. And I'm going to tell you and our listeners all about that. But before I do that... We should fill in the rest of the story, which Bren laid out for me while we were on his boat. So basically, he says, around the time he was living at the University of Vermont on the golf course, he had this epiphany. He realized that the way we as a society were trying to do seafood at scale, it was backwards. Because we were working backwards. We're trying to farm the seafood that we used to hunt like that you used to catch, like wild, large fish that we would catch with nets and fishing lines.
3: Everybody ate salmon and tuna, which is a wild palate. So we started growing salmon, tuna, whatever we could. Uh And instead of asking the ocean what to grow. And you ask the ocean what to grow, and it's just so simple. It says grow things that don't swim away and you don't have to feed.
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I love it.
2: (laughs) Grow things that don't swim away. And you don't have to feed.
1: It really is simple, isn't it? So wise. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And so with that epiphany, Bren was like, oh, I know what I'm going to farm. Not salmon. Oysters.
1: Wait a second. We're supposed to be talking about seaweed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You and your detours.
2: We also did promise lots of trial and error. We warned you. So, after graduating from college and bumming around here and there, Brand decided to set himself up as an oyster farmer. He's like, he went out on the ocean, he got himself set up with oyster, what is it, seeds or something? What is it?
1: Uh, larvae.
2: Larvae or larvae?
1: Larvae is singular, and larvae, V-A-E, uh, is plural. All right. You did not know that How to Save a Planet was your go-to for Latin uh, endings? <laughs> 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 Refreshers? <Over> <laughs>
2: and, um... So he got some oyster larvae.
1: Right. So these larval oysters, they actually seek out and then settle on the shells of old oysters. And that's where they decide to put down roots and grow their own shells. And then they accumulate into what's called an oyster reef as all these oysters start growing essentially on top of each other. And they form what can be quite large natural structures. And in New York City, in New York Harbor, there used to be like billions and billions of oysters that were creating these structures so large that they were navigational hazards. Oh. But, you know, because oysters are pretty easy to catch, they don't swim away. Right. Um, pretty easy to overfish oysters. So yeah. there used to be like oyster carts on the streets in Manhattan, just like there are now like hot dog stands. That's amazing. It's like a penny. For an oyster, so crazy, um, and so it was this really big part of the coastal economy for a bit, and and now we have figured out how to farm them instead.
2: So he started doing that. He he had this oyster bed that he was farming and tending, and that was going okay for a while, but then there's this pretty big problem, which we are familiar with on this podcast, um, called called climate change. <laughs>
3: My oyster farm got wiped out by Hurricane Irene and Hurricane Sandy. So two years in a row.
2: These hurricanes, they came with these huge storm surges. And the surges swept all this mud and plopped it right on top of Bren's oysters that were on the seafloor, wiping out the crop.
1: And these strong storm surges are exactly what scientists have been predicting we would see more of with climate change. So when Bren saw this happen year after year. He saw it as an alarm bell.
2: So before 2011 and 2012, when these hurricanes hit, Brent says that climate change wasn't something he thought that much about. He was thinking about the environmental impacts of fishing and farming, but climate change, it didn't seem like something that would affect him personally until his oyster crop got wiped out two years in a row.
3: First year, you're like, oh, okay, that sucks. I'll recover. Two years in a row, you're like, you know, this isn't a slow lobster boil, this is climate change is here here and now, and those of us on the water are sort of canaries of the coal wide. So that's when, you know, I want to die on my boat. So I wasn't going to leave the water, but I need to figure out what was more, more resilient to grow. So, like anybody just hopped online, Google started searching everything I could grow. Uh, I typed in, I typed in uh, aquaculture in Connecticut. Um, expecting, you know, just oysters to come up.
2: And, and Charlie's name popped up. Charlie is Charlie Yarish, a professor at the University of Connecticut. Have you ever come across him? I don't know him. So he's one of these people who's been basically on this quiet quest for decades. And the thing he's been quietly questing about is seaweed farming. His official title is marine phycologist, meaning... He studies seaweed. And his big point for a long time is that basically in America, we're thinking about seaweed all wrong. First of all, it's not a weed. It's a vegetable that just happens to grow underwater. And of course, we should say this fact is widely known in large parts of the world outside the United States. Seaweed is a staple of many, many diets globally, especially in Asia. And seaweed farming is big business. It's a $6 billion industry globally. There are huge seaweed farms all throughout Asia. And what Charlie has been saying is that we should try to set up a domestic industry here in the United States. And so when Bren got in touch with Charlie Yerish, Charlie explained all of this to him and said, if we did manage in the United States to set up our own domestic seaweed industry, the benefits would be enormous.
1: As a marine biologist, I strongly co-sign the benefits of seaweed.
2: (laughs) I knew you would. Let's dive in.
1: So first of all, seaweed is tasty and nutritious, and it fits with Bren's rule about what to farm in the ocean. Kelp does not swim away, and you don't have to feed it. The variety that Charlie proposed Bren should grow is called sugar kelp, which is native to Long Island Sound, and it doesn't require any fertilizer or anything. It just sucks up photons from the sun and nutrients from the ocean and does photosynthesis.
2: Another advantage is you can grow kelp on these long ropes that are attached to buoys. And so the kelp is growing off of the sea floor, and it doesn't get buried by storm surges like Bren's oysters did. And when you grow kelp, you can grow lots of other things along with it, sort of on the same lines that you're growing your kelp on. Bren calls this 3D ocean farming. He's he's, he's told you about this, right?
1: Yeah, um, I first learned about it. With the term polyculture, like the opposite Mm. of monoculture, like you're growing a bunch of different species in the same place. And the thing that's different between farming the ocean and farming on land is that when you're farming on land, you just have like... This one surface, right? Right. But in the ocean, you have this third dimension, which is depth. And you can farm seaweed that's hanging down from these ropes between buoys at the surface. You can farm oysters down at the bottom. You can farm mussels that are hanging down on ropes. And so you can kind of use every different depth level to grow something, like scallops hanging in these baskets. And it's really cool. So you can produce all this food... In a pretty small surface area of the ocean because you can farm it top to bottom. And the hope is if this
2: type of 3D ocean farming catches on, it can shift some of our food production off of the land and into the sea. You know, because on the land, agriculture can have a pretty profound environmental effect since it relies so heavily on herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers.
1: Some kinds of agriculture.
2: Yeah, a lot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> See our previous episodes on regenerative farming. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. It doesn't have to, but in many places it still does. But in this kind of ocean farming, you don't need any of that stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. the kelp plus the other things that you're growing, like the oysters and scallops and mussels, they just feed on the nutrients already in the water. And there was one other huge, huge benefit to seaweed farming. Seaweed is a climate solution.
1: There's actually four ways that seaweed can help us address climate change. So first and foremost, it's a plant that does photosynthesis. So it's absorbing carbon dioxide, which is great. The second thing is that as these seaweed underwater plants are absorbing all this carbon dioxide, that's actually helping to address ocean acidification. So over the last century, all of these fossil fuels that we've burned have released all this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Right. And the ocean— has actually absorbed about a third of that CO2, Mm -hmm. which has led to the ocean now being 30% more acidic than it was 150 years ago. Jesus. And this just blows my mind that we have changed the pH of the entire ocean. That's crazy. We have changed the chemistry of seawater globally. And this has all sorts of effects from making it harder for shellfish to grow their shells, making it harder for fish to smell their way home or smell predators. And so the seaweed, by absorbing some of that carbon, is actually locally helping to mitigate the impacts of ocean acidification. So that's great. And then number three, having these kelp forests, these seaweed farms out there means that when a storm comes, the storm surge hits the seaweed before it hits the shoreline, and it actually serves as a physical barrier to protect the coast. It lessens the impact of storms.
2: And in a world... Where warming makes storm surges bigger and more damaging, this could actually make us more resilient to those effects,
1: yeah. it could could protect us a little bit. yep. And then the last one is just that it creates habitat for biodiversity, for all these different species. So there's just more life in the ocean because fish and crabs and snails and worms and all these things, they just like to have something to live on or hide under or hang out near. Um, And so it's just more habitat. So that's great, too. So basically, I'm super into seaweed. I don't know if that was obvious or not. (laughs) Uh, Lots (laughs) of reasons that we want to be focusing on seaweed instead of fishing large wild fish.
2: Yes. And the more Bren was learning about all this from Charlie Yarish and others, the more he realized that this was his next move. This was the move that would allow him to stay on the sea and be part of the solution to climate change, which, you know, had in part driven him off his oyster farm. Bren decided, I will become a kelp farmer. And it was this very kelp farm that Bren was showing me on the day I went to visit him.
3: Oh, can you, do you mind handing me that tote? I need another
2: barrel there. We were on one of those working fishing boats. You know, it's like 25 feet long, really sturdy, lots of barrels and ropes. And we were looking at a farm. But I can't stress enough how much this farm did not look like a farm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what it looked like? <laughs> water.
1: Yeah. Some was, buoys.
2: Yes. Yes. Like, open open water, some buoys. Um, and that was pretty much it. But the farm was there. It was just underwater. Mm-hmm. At one point, Bren leaned over the edge of yeah, the boat. Uh, he grabbed this big rope that was attached to one of his buoys, cut it loose, and he started dragging it onto his boat. And attached to the rope were these long vines of, of kelp.
3: So I'm just hauling a wall of kelp. <laughs> Up onto the boat so I can cut it and weigh it and then put it in these barrels. Uh. I can
1: totally picture this like you and Bren with your masks on, you with like your boom microphone being like, what is coming out of the ocean? Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and like he's dragging these huge like lines with this rope and the, the kelp, it sort of like grows down. From the rope, so if you were like underwater scuba diving around, you would see these rows of kelp just sort of going the opposite way, gro- growing like down, like
1: curtains hanging down. Yeah, like curtains yeah.
2: hanging down, and that is the harvest. That is what Bren is is farming.
3: So this is a wall of kelp. This is uh, sugar kelp. It's what we grow uh, here. It's native to Long Island Sound, and you can see the blades are—I don't know somewhere are like probably ten feet. Long, you got these beautiful stipes. I don't know if you've ever tasted a stipe before, uh, <laughs> or if you want to.
2: So,
1: <laughs> stipe is like the stem. Yeah, of a, yeah. A yeah if, you, plant. if
2: you think about like a like a, a a kale leaf, you know the stem from the kale leaf that attaches it to the stalk. There's like that sort of, I guess, sort of the stipe. And he basically hands me this. He he snips one off with his knife and and hands it to me. And so you know. I'm a good guest. I'm not going to refuse an offer of food.
1: Intrepid. Intrepid taste tester. I mean, it's a plant, so... (laughs) That's right. It's not like organ meats or something.
2: Yeah. I lowered my mask and I tried it.
1: Oh. Blanch it. That's... That's really good. Yeah.
3: it's it's right. Who would have guessed? It's it's like salty and... Yep. It's like a salted carrot or something. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so now I'm going to weigh it. You always weigh your own stuff because you, you never trust a processor.
2: Learn that in fishing. <laughs> Bren takes this big barrel filled with kelp that he's pulled up and hefts it onto the scale. And then he radios back to his co-worker on shore and reads off the numbers.
3: Hey, Jill, you there? I'm here. Okay, I'm going to give you some weights. So first tote is 48 pounds. 48
2: she just say 48? Yeah. Okay.
1: Cool. Is 48 pounds a lot of kelp? 48 no pounds idea. is like a
2: big barrel. It's like one of these... It's, it's like, like an
1: oil drum size. Just the worst analogy, but, you know. Yeah,
2: one of these big plastic barrels
1: how many pounds of it had you eaten before he weighed it did you really like (laughs) i just make
2: a dent in the harvest i was not gonna i didn't want to cut into his margins (laughs) but speaking of margins like Brent actually sort of went over the finances and you know it's it's hard to make a living as a farmer but like one advantage of 3d farming is that like the startup costs like how much it takes to get set up it's not that much It's, it's actually really affordable
3: don't have to go out that far my land's cheap Out here, it's cheap, you know, $20,000 to start a farm. You can see it's just ropes, buoys, string, and some acres, right? I don't have to fight gravity. I don't need gigantic structures because everything just floats. It's cheap to do, makes it replicable, makes it scalable. I have such low overhead. I got like almost no fuel. I'm just floating around. And uh, uh, no inputs like fertilizer feed, things like that. How, How did you buy your farm? Yeah, so we don't own this water. We lease it from the town or the state, depending on where where it is. This plot is $50 an acre. I got another plot that's $25 an acre. So it's really cheap, which is incredible. But anybody could boat, fish, swim. $50 $50 an acre. Per year. Right? Right? This is why, like, just a regular guy who lived in a trailer for a decade can do this.
2: (laughs) By the way, when he's talking about the regular guy who lived in a trailer for a decade, he's referring to himself. That was him. Yep.
1: Yeah. He tried to do aquaculture in that trailer, too, with, like, plastic <laughs> bins or something crazy like that. He was, like, living in an Airstream, trying to grow fish in Walmart bags. He's, like, tried everything.
2: Okay. So, seaweed farming? Yeah. Affordable?
1: Check. Check. Tasty and nutritious? Check. check. Climate solution? Mm-hmm. Check. Four checks for the different check, ways in a solution. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm into it. So,
2: there's only one problem. Here in the United States, there are not a lot of people who want to buy it.
1: (laughs) Oh, that. Yeah, kind of a snag.
2: The domestic market, as they say, is not very mature.
1: Indeed. Not yet, anyway. There's certainly a robust international market, though. But Bren's goal is to build a bigger industry here in the U.S. We've got one of the largest ocean jurisdictions of any nation. And Bren sees a domestic kelp industry as a big solution that needs to scale here, too.
2: Right. Like if we could get kelp farms like his all up and down the coasts of America, it would help with climate. It would make coastlands more resilient. It could create livelihoods for tens or even hundreds of thousands of people. And it would help move us as a society to a more sustainable method of food production. And so, like, lots of good things. But in order for all of it to happen, a lot more people have to want to buy seaweed here. Yeah. Like, there has to be a domestic market. And that is the pretty extreme task that Brand has set for himself. Nothing less than... slacker, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing less than exponentially scaling a domestic seaweed industry.
1: And so when Bren started growing his first kelp crops, he was also at the same time starting the work of creating a market right. for what he was growing.
2: And initially, the way he did that, he was like, you know what I need? I need some people who actually know how to cook to like <laughs> <laughs> start telling people like what they can do with this stuff. And so then Bren did this crazy thing, which I think you'll love. And so, you know how Bren's a great storyteller, he's got a flair mm-hmm. for creating buzz. He was doing these tours of his kelp farm for students from the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Mm -hmm. And he figured, you know what? These fancy Ivy League kids, they're probably going to know some famous people. And he started asking all these tour groups if they knew any famous chefs (laughs) who he could enlist in his kelp marketing efforts. (laughs) Of course he did. (laughs) And uh, the L kids, they came through for him.
3: I mean, I had the top 10 chefs in the world out here. I had Rene Redzepi, David Chang, Alex Atillo, They all came out the farm. And the thing that they said was, oh, this doesn't, we haven't tasted something like this before.
2: And, you know, Atlantic sugar kelp did eventually start showing up on fancy restaurant menus. But Bren says that as a strategy for actually addressing climate change, courting fancy Brooklyn foodies, he was like, that's never going to get us there. Too niche. It's like, it can't be this cute yeah. thing,
3: right? We've got to think scale. We need to scale the right way through networked production. And you got to sure sell the McDonald's. Family. Exactly. Yeah. Well, McDonald's had a seaweed burger in the early 1990s called the McLean Sandwich, and it became the official burger of the National Basketball Association. Wow. They didn't mention the seaweed, right. but it was an ingredient. So anyway, so I got kind of soured on the boutique restaurants. It was fine, but there was like, we are just obsessed with scale because once I started doing seaweed, I was like, okay, I'm now a climate farmer. Uh-huh. Right, And this is my piece of the puzzle. Let's figure
2: it out. So scale became key. Scale in order to make this like not just a thing that one guy's doing in Connecticut, but like millions of people could be doing up and down the eastern seaboard.
3: Yeah. Like we should be getting just out of this hundred mile anchors. We should be getting about two million pounds of kelp. Like, you know, what I think of as a reef, right? 50 small yeah. to medium sized farms processing off a hatchery, rings of buyers and entrepreneurs. And then you replicate that. Right.
2: All right. So that's the vision, right? hmm And that brings us to today, where Bren is today. He is, like, actually trying to fully scale kelp. He says that, like, a lot of people are kelp gardening, and he wants people kelp mm-hmm. farming.
1: <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> that's right. I get it.
2: And I think you know this. You, you've known it longer than I have. But just from my, my short time hanging out with him, you become very aware that, like, he's a very savvy marketer. Like, mm. really, really impressively so. And so he said originally when he was like sort of pitching kelp, he was like, it's the new kale, you know, this formerly forgotten vegetable that now shows up in recipes and menus everywhere. Yeah,
1: one of their slogans was kelp is the new kale.
2: Well, he's got a new slogan now. You know what he wants kelp to be now? The new new thing?
1: I do know because I read Brent Smith's book uh-huh. called Eat Like a Fish Uh And he wants seaweed to be the new soy.
2: Exactly.
1: Just like in everything as a base, as a substrate, as the sort of neutral, but very nutritious thing that you're putting in stuff.
2: Yes. And soy is one of those foods like... Almost all of us are consuming soy all the time without really knowing it because it's an ingredient in so many things like processed foods, animal feeds, Mm -hmm. vegetable-based packaging. It's in all this stuff. And Bren wants kelp to be that. He wants kelp to go far beyond what it is in the U.S. today, beyond this specialty item that you can find in Asian grocery stores and occasional artisanal hipster spots. He wants to turn it into something that is everywhere, And not even just in food, but an ingredient in cosmetics and sustainable packaging and bioplastic everywhere.
1: But, you know, without all the problems that soy has that have led to it being sort of the poster child for big ag and the way that it degrades soil and overuses pesticides and all that bad stuff.
2: Exactly. He just wants the market to be the same size as the market for soy and soy products. That is how big he thinks the market for kelp has to get— to enable the transition he imagines. And so, he is working with people to figure out how can we make kelp into the new soy, which is essentially asking the question, what can we do with this stuff, <laughs> right? What is kelp good at?
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> and he's enlisting other folks in trying to find the answer to that question. What else is kelp good for? So Bran harvested all this kelp right that day. He came back, he had like five huge plastic barrels packed full of kelp, over 500 pounds of it. And he rolled the barrels off the boat, up onto the dock, where there were these two dudes waiting to pick it up. Their names were Casey Emmett and Craig Wilson, and they were with a group called The Crop Project. So you guys are the uh, next link in the chain, you are the next link in the chain. So we've got a... A pickup truck
3: filled with five barrels of about 579 pounds of um, Atlantic sugar kelp and farmed from Bren Smith's
2: farm. So, Ayana. Alex. Do you want to know what these guys have to do with (laughs) building the massive domestic industry for kelp that will allow Bren Smith to unleash his climate-saving plan on the world?
1: I mean, how could I resist? Good.
2: Good. You have to wait till next episode. (gasps) A two-parter, everyone!
1: Our first cliffhanger. (laughs) This is so exciting.
2: And so in the next episode, we'll follow Casey and Craig as they try to figure out what to do with five barrels and 579 pounds of Bren Smith's just-farmed sugar kelp.
1: How are they going to create a new industry and demand for this product in the U.S.? Like, what are we going to do with all this kelp?
2: And actually, we at the staff of How to Save a Planet, we get in on some of that R&D action ourselves and start experimenting in our own research facilities. Yeah. A.K.A. our kitchens.
1: Come come join us in our test kitchens.
2: (laughs) To see what we can do with kelp. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for that next episode to drop, here are some calls to action.
1: So you can check out Bren Smith's book, which is called Eat Like a Fish. I read it. I loved it. Pick it up from your local bookstore.
2: Also, you should check out Bren's organization called Green Wave. It's a nonprofit devoted to fostering a domestic seaweed industry. And it's got lots of really cool resources on the site. Perhaps you want to learn how to become a seaweed farmer yourself or sponsor a farmer or just learn more about seaweed farming. Also, there is a way to support the work that is happening on GreenWave on that site if you just want to sort of contribute and help. Um, All of that is at GreenWave.org.
1: And I should, for full disclosure, say that I am on the board of GreenWave. I am that big of a fan of seaweed and their vision of, you know, hundreds of ocean farms dotting the coasts and providing all these great local jobs and this nutritious, environmentally friendly food that I've like literally volunteering my time (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to help make this dream come true. And if you're excited about this burgeoning industry of ocean farming and you want to start your own hatchery or farm or underwater garden, we'll have a link to some do-it-yourself materials in our newsletter and in the show notes. Right, And we get a bunch of emails here at How to Save a Planet from listeners who are really engaged in climate topics and are young and trying to figure out what they want to do to start off their careers in climate solutions. So for those of you thinking about what even to study in college, you can actually get a degree in aquaculture. You could study ocean farming, whether that's the science side or the policy side or the economics of it. You can be a part of this. For links to resources, more information about all of this stuff, that's all in our newsletter, which you should sign up for. You'll get a little treat in your inbox every week. You can sign up at howtosaveaplanet.show.
2: And if you take any of our suggested actions, let us know about it. Send us an email, or better yet, record yourself on a voice memo and send us that. We're at howtosaveaplanet at spotify.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. How to save a planet. That's how the number two save a planet.
1: Oh, and if you like the show, And a bunch of you we know are coming back week after week to see, like, what else are we going to talk about? Please make sure to give us a review, like, shower us with stars and maybe a few nice words. And
2: don't keep us a secret.
1: Share us with your friends.
2: All right. Should we do the credits? I'm ready. Take it away.
1: How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and a gimlet production hosted by me, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And me,
2: Alex Bloomberg.
1: Our reporters and producers are Kendra Pierre Lewis, Rachel Waldholz, Anna Ladd, and Felix Poon. Our intern is Io Oti. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Our editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design and mixing by Sam Baer and Peter Leonard, with original music by Peter Leonard and
2: Emma Bunger. Our fact checker this week is Sarah Craig.
1: Special thanks to Liana Coviello, Jill Pegnatero, Chriselle Soriano, and Sam Garwin.
2: See weed you next week <laughs> oh, <Alex.
0: laughs> Am I allowed to fire you for that? <laughs> so bad <laughs> kelp. Manoush here. That was an episode of Gimlet's How to Save a Planet. For part two of Bren Smith's story and many more episodes of the show, go join Alex and Diana on Spotify. I will be back on Friday with the final part of our TED Radio Hour Ocean Series. If you've ever been confused about what kind of seafood you should and shouldn't eat, well, this one's for you. I go shopping at the Fishmonger's, and Diana sets me straight. For now, I'm Manoush Summerodi. This is NPR, and thanks so much for listening.